Welcome. I'm glad you're here. For those of you who don't know, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, whatever brought you here this morning, whatever, if you join us online, we're glad you're joining us. Um, I'm glad you're here. I, I know that in this room and online, there's a lot of different stories. Um, a lot of different ideas that people have and, and opinions people have. And, and uh, you know, like, for example, an easy one here, right? Um, there are a lot of different fans of different sports teams, right? How, how many of you guys are college football fans? Any college football fans, right? Okay, here's the thing. We may disagree on who the right team to root for is, right? We may disagree. Some of you are wrong. The right answer is the Ducks. But... But, 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 but here's the thing we can agree on. We can all agree on the enemy, and that enemy is Alabama, <laughs> right? Amen. And so with that, we're going to sing a hymn of celebration. Good old Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee, woo! Oh, man. Oh. It is not a coincidence that uh, Nick Saban's last name is just one letter off <laughs> from a character we know in this book. Um, <laughs> anyways, I'm sure he's a nice guy. Um, uh, hey, um, we are working through a series called um, Us, What It Means to Be We. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be First Peter is where we're going to be. First Peter 2. And uh, the statement we're looking at today, this is week five of the series, next week will be our last. The statement we're looking at today is, um, we worship one God with one voice. We truly believe that something mysteriously powerful happens when the people of God gather. That statement has a lot. It's loaded with a lot of things. The first half of the statement makes incredible theological claims Right? And it's also an appeal that I think is really important, especially in this time, and it's an appeal to unity, that we worship with one voice. But this week, I really just actually wanted to sit on the second half of that statement that, that says, the second half of the statement says, that we truly believe something mysteriously powerful happens when the people of God gather. Here's the deal, right? Uh, like I said, we all have different, different stories, different places in life, different journeys we're on right now. And for some of us who have spent a lot of years going to church, there could become this thing in going to church that can become so routine, so rote, that our brains disconnect and our hearts disconnect. And we just begin to go through the motions of church. We, we show up five minutes late. We, we join online. We, um, uh, we, we sing two songs. And maybe even during the second song, there comes a moment, if we're honest, if we're really honest, sometimes there's times we sing a song and we're so familiar with it. We, mo we notice at one point that all of a sudden our brain was wandering somewhere else and we were standing there and maybe even singing, but our heart and our mind wasn't engaged, we show up and we look at this book and the things of it seem so familiar. I think I've told you this story before. I had an elder one time and he said, Sean, I don't really understand um, why I need to listen to more sermons. I've heard every sermon that could possibly come out of this book. I've heard the prodigal son told from every story included the fattened calf that was slaughtered, right? And this can become so familiar that we lose the mystery of what it is when we gather together. 
Whether here in this space or, or in offices or in homes, that there is, Scripture tells us there's something mysterious and powerful and beautiful and otherworldly, something sacred that occurs when the body gathers. Maybe you're new to church and, um, you know, pre-COVID, there was uh, quite a bit of um, international students at Western. And so we would get quite a few international students, and some of them came from places in the world that uh, their exposure to church was like nothing. Like they really had zero exposure. And they would come up, to, come up after service to me, and this is the compliment they would give. They would say, um, uh, we, we, very like, we very much like the variety show. And at first I was like, what? And then as we talked it out, it, began, it made sense. Like they show up in a room, there's lights, a band gets on the stage, we all do karaoke together, and, and, then, and then a guy gets on stage who thinks he's funny, talks for a little while, and then we do karaoke together and we all leave. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And maybe for you, maybe for you there isn't a mystery to church because it's just a, a variety show that you're forced to show up to or pressured to show up to or just unsure of why you even show up. But scripture tells us, 1 Peter in particular, tells us that there is something, the phrase we say is mysteriously powerful when the people of God gather. So my hope today, my hope today is to reignite, to recapture some of the imagination of the beauty and the mystery of what happens every single time the people of God gather, whether in this room or anywhere else in the world. So if you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to start at verse 1, right? It says this. Therefore, put aside all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. That's a long list. That's a whole other sermon, but it's probably an important sermon for us. It says this, verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Okay, so, so here's who Paul's talking to. He initially calls us foreigners. He calls us aliens in a foreign land, right? But now he's talking and he's saying, anybody who's tasted the kindness of Jesus, that if you've tasted and experienced the goodness of God, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus because of what he's done for us, right? Look at what he says, verse 4. And coming to him, being Jesus, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Um, some places, some translations, a living cornerstone, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, or, or yours might say um, temple, right? In Jewish thought, the temple and the tabernacle were really interchangeable, just for future reference. Like the tabernacle was like the mobile home version, and then the temple was like the stick-built version, right? That you were being built up as a temple, as a spiritual house, as a tabernacle for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so Peter wants us to see this image, right? He says part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that there is a cornerstone in Jesus, that anytime anything is established around Jesus, that we are like bricks that are building up this temple for worship and sacrifice and celebration of the goodness of God. Now, now here's the thing. 
Um, we, we, we live where we do in the time that we do. Temples aren't really a thing for us, right? The closest that you've maybe ever been to a temple is if you've been in church long enough if you've old enough or you came from a tradition that treated the, the space that you did church like a, like a, um, a holy place and you, 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 you didn't talk loud, you didn't run because God couldn't handle you if you ran fast, right? He like wouldn't be able to keep his eyes on you or something, I don't know, right? And it was this like holy space. That's the closest, but it's still not anywhere even close. Uh, Peter, when he's writing 2,000 years ago, he's writing in a culture that is saturated with temples everywhere. And in the ancient Near East, a temple was this place where um, God and man met. That the, the power and mystery of God would dwell uniquely in that space. And that people could come to that space to worship and engage with their God. And they were everywhere in every religion. Now, e even in Jewish thought, even in Peter's thought, right? Because you've got to remember, we said this when we did the book of Matthew. It's incredibly important. Right? Um, we said this of Matthew, and I'm going to insert Peter's name. If you remember it, say it with me, right? Peter is a Jew. So his whole religion, his whole life is built around this spiritual house, around this temple, around this tabernacle, about this dwelling place of God. But even Jews knew that God didn't just dwell in the temple. Right? In fact, they would name places. There, there's, a, there's a town called Bethel, Right? And the name of that place is literally the house of God. It's a, it's a place where Abraham met God and he built an altar. And they would know that there are places in this world, not just in the temple, but there was something special about the temple as an intersection, as a meeting place between God and his creation. And Peter's saying to us that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of the image he's using. You're a part of this temple. You're a part of this building that is getting built up to create an intersection between God and his creation. That we are creating a space, an interchange between the God of the universe and his loved creation. Now he talks a little bit about Jesus, but then skip down to verse 9. Look, look, at, look at verse 9. This is where it gets weird, okay? He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, wait a second. Look back again. Look back up at the end of verse five, right? What does he say of us? He says, we're living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So, so first he says, you're the building that holds the priesthood, but now all of a sudden the image has changed, and now we're the priests inside the building. It's like a weird illustration that we're both bricks and priests. And the thing about priests, just like temples, like maybe you spent some time, maybe you grew up, maybe you've had some interaction with the Catholic Church, and you have some familiarity with a little bit of a role of what a priest might look like. But in Peter's day, 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, priests were everywhere. It was a whole thing. It was, it was a whole, there was a whole culture, there was a, there was a, 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 a nauseam to how much priests were involved in people's lives. And, and, and so we have to ask the question, like if, P, if, if Peter's telling us that we are the temple of God as the church being built up to be the dwelling place of the intersection of God, but then we're also the priests, what does it mean to be a priest and what does it mean to be a temple? Well, again, Peter 
was a Jew, and so he would have known, but if you have your Bible, you can turn back to Numbers 3, where it actually tells us the job of the priest. Numbers 3. It's very beginning of your Bible. It says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of, e of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest. Okay, because at this point in time, there is a priest. Right? There's a single priest. There's Aaron, but that obviously isn't going to work. And so God is choosing a whole tribe, a whole section of the Israelite people, that their job is to be the priestly tribe. Okay? Verse 7. He tells them their job. Right here. You ready? They shall perform the duties for him and for the congregation before the tent of meeting. This is how they do it. To do the service of the tabernacle. Now, the word there, they aptly um, translate service, but they translate service because we're talking about a religious thing. The, the word there is actually just work, right? Um, they should do the work of a sheep herder. They should do the work of a construction worker, right? That's a, it's, just, it's just to do work, right? They should work the tabernacle. Verse 8, they shall also keep all the furnishing of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service, to do the work of the tabernacle. Now, if you are a... Um, native Hebrew speaker in an oral society. So here's the thing. Um, ancient Near East, and, and when they're writing the book of Numbers thousands of years ago, the people were a, an oral society. And you might think that we're developing to be more of an oral society because like, we listen to podcasts and all that kind of stuff. But um, to be a true oral society is actually something that develops in your brain when you're very young. The way your brain is wired when you natively grow up in an oral society is different. The best illustration I can give to you about how um, brains work when people are in oral society is, uh, ha have, you, have you ever walked into a room and smelled a smell and immediately remembered something? Have you done that? Like you walk into a room and maybe like it smells kind of like, like stanky, right? And you're like, oh, oh, reminds me of a basement I had growing up. Right? Like that kind of nasty water smell, or you walk into a room and it just smells nasty, and you're like, oh, whoo, reminds me of junior high locker room, or my kid's bedroom, like, right? These smells, there's something in our brain, even for us today, there's something in the way God made us, that when we don't think about them, we don't have to go, oh, this smell, I've smelled the smell somewhere before, it reminds me, oh, yeah, little... Ah, oh, yeah, 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 a little musty, right? We don't, have to, we don't have to remember, it just clicks with our brain. And in an oral society, words have that same power. When you think, when you hear something, it just clicks in your brain. And if you're a Hebrew, native Hebrew listener, neighbor Hebrew speaker, and you heard this phrase, to work and keep, your brain would automatically go, I've heard that before. And maybe even not as a native oral, oral society, um, maybe you've heard that phrase. There's a time before the book of Numbers where God gives the same command to some people. He tells them to work and to keep it. And maybe you've spent enough time in the Bible you can think of that. There's not a lot of stories before the book of Numbers. It actually comes in Genesis 2. 
Genesis 2. Look at Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15, right? Their brains would have automatically thought of this moment. To work and to keep. Look at what it says in Genesis 2, verse 15. Right? Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, right? Um, that's, uh, um, Adam just means man. That's why we call him Adam. He took Adam and, and put him in the garden of Eden to, in the Hebrew, it's the same phrase, to work and to keep it. You see, there's something in the role of the priests that's connected all the way back to the Genesis story. All the way back to the creation story. If, if you don't know, when you open your Bible to Genesis 1, there's this poem, this song that, that tells kind of the, the, the macro story of creation, the overarching seven days, all these, everything's created. And then when we get to Genesis 2 verse 4, it begins to tell you a micro story of just the image bearers of God, right? That's where we meet Adam and Eve and the serpent and the rebellion and all these types of things. But he gives them the same commissioning. There's something he's doing in numbers in the priesthood that he's reinstating a call that he's always had for his people to work and to keep the place of God's goodness and kindness and blessing. But it's more than that. It's more than that. This is where, this is where I think it's fascinating. It's awesome. Okay. Look, look at this. Look, go back up to verse four if you have Bibles in front of you. Otherwise, I'm just going to read to you. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day, the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, just pause there for a second. When, when you see the word um, heaven in scripture, often, often it's not referring to the dwelling place of God. There's plenty of times it does. Okay? There's plenty of times it refers to the dwelling place of God. But a lot of times, um, like in the Genesis story, it's not saying that God suddenly made a dwelling place for himself. Right? Um, what it's actually referring to is, is they're saying that um, in the beginning, God made all this physical stuff we stand on and then all that stuff up there. Right? They, there was all kinds of stuff up there. They didn't know what it did. They didn't know how it got there. The stars and the clouds and lightning and hailstorms, all that kind of stuff. They did. Just all that skies. Right? It could, it could just as aptly be translated that this is the account of the skies and the earth when they were created. In the day, the Lord God made earth and the skies. So, so here's, here's, what, here's what the story tells us, okay? So um, I brought the whiteboard back. One day special. Okay? Here, here's what the story tells us. God made this place called heaven and earth. And earth. Okay? This is the, the Genesis story. God forms and makes and he separates the land from the water and he, and he puts animals on the dry land and shrubs and all those types of things. But look at, look at this. Maybe you haven't noticed this before. Look at what it says in, in verse eight. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. Wait a second. Did you see that? Here's what the writer of Genesis tells us. There is the heavens and the earth, but then there's another place, okay? This is what the story of Genesis tells us. There's this other place. It's called Eden. Did you know this? That the garden and Eden are not synonymous. 
The garden and Eden. That's why we call it the garden in Eden. The garden and Eden are not the same place. There is a place called Eden, and actually in the Hebrew, um, the word is uh, the place of delight. Right? There is a place in all of this chaos, all of this untamed creation, right? Because yet, as of yet, it's untamed. God, God, God separated it, and he did all kinds of great things, but, but it's still this kind of place of untamed things. But there's a place in all of this called Eden, right? But then he says that he placed man, that he, sorry, he cultivated... Verse 8, he planted or made or cultivated a garden towards the east in Eden. So not all, not all of Eden is the garden. Okay, look, look at this, look at this. In Eden, there is a place that is a garden. This is important. It's going to change the way you worship, I promise. But inside the garden, there's even a more special place. Do you remember what's at the center of the garden? Someone said it. The tree of life. The tree of life. Look, 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 right? At the center of the garden. I can't write tree of life in there, so tree's going to have to suffice. There is the tree of life. Somewhere near it, it seems, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but at the center of the garden is the tree. In the east of Eden is the garden, and Eden exists in this space that they call the heavens and the earth. Do you remember? Um, do you remember the first time, the first place that the Jewish people constructed a tabernacle or a temple? Do you remember where they resided in that moment? remember? In the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the wilderness. And then when God tells them to build the temple, watch this, wilderness. When God tells them to build a temple, he begins by telling them to, to carve out a space, to carve out a special space and to create boundaries around the special place. And we're going to call it the courtyard. And then inside the courtyard is where you're actually going to put the tent or the temple. Inside the courtyard, you're going to construct a building. And inside that courtyard, you're going to build, I'm going to put here a temple, but it could also be the tabernacle. And inside the temple, do you remember the temple had two rooms? Inside the temple, there's another room. Do you remember what it's called? The Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies right here. Right there. See what God did? When God, when God told the Israelite people how to construct the temple, it was not just some arbitrary map that he thought up. It also was not a map, it was not an image that replicated the, the cultures and societies around them. When God, when God constructed the temple or the tabernacle for them, it was to be a map of the cosmic reality. It was to remind them of the way ultimate reality was. In fact, inside the temple, if you read it, go, it's riveting reading. If you go read um, all about how they constructed the tabernacle and the temple, you, you know what's one of the most common images in there all the time? Trees, which is weird for desert people, right? Why? 
because he wants them to see when they walk into the temple images that remind them of the garden inside Eden. That amongst the chaos of the wilderness and the brokenness and death and decay of the world that surrounds them, that there is a place that is God's delight, that he dwells uniquely. And inside that place is a garden of goodness. And at the center of that garden is a tree of life. It's a tree of life. This is... This is the image that God wants the Jewish people to see. But not only the Jewish people, he wants, Peter wants us to see it. Because remember what he says of us? He says, you are this. You are the spiritual house. So, so here's what this means. Here's why this matters. Every time you gather with other believers and Jesus is at the center of it, that space is sacred and holy ground. Every single time you gather with other believers, whether it's in a room like this on a Sunday morning or it's a Tuesday night with your family over dinner or it's on a Thursday morning with friends where you're having coffee or it's in, it's in your cubicle at work or in your classroom, every single time you gather together, the image that Peter wants us to see that every single time we gather together, we are a people who are constructing just as Jewish people did in the midst of an arid desert, we are constructing a unique and special, a sacred place of the meeting of God and his creation. That there is something holy and mysterious that happens every time we gather. And not only are we that temple, but we are the ones responsible for caring for and keeping that space. That when you gather with other believers and Jesus is at the center, that space becomes holy ground, not because the ground you stand on, but because the souls that occupy it. That every place you go and you gather with other, this is the mystery and the beauty and the power that happens when believers gather is that we are people called to wander through this arid and broken land and be people who are setting up little Edens little outposts of God's goodness and his delight that's lavished upon his creation. That we are to be people who are to keep and to care for so that others might be welcomed, might be invited into the garden of God's goodness and find life and goodness and hope. That his kingdom might come, that his Eden, that his garden, that his goodness might come here on earth where we stand as it is in heaven. So I pray, I hope that we might be a people that would walk out of here today being reminded that what we do when we gather is not some simple religious ceremony, but there is a great mystery and power of the coming together of the things of God and his creation. That the moment we gather, it becomes sacred space because the Savior that we gather around. You see, he, he, here's the beautiful thing. For people who are followers of Jesus, there is nothing ordinary in your life. Everything is sacred and an invitation for God's goodness and blessing to break into his broken and arid creation.
And so may we be, may we be that place of goodness and delight. May we be a place that worships and honors and celebrates and sacrifices well so that God's good garden of life might bloom in the midst of our arid deserts.